0: Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to another Duckman TV episode. Today, we have the voice of rugby, Gordon Braz. It's an absolute delight and pleasure to have one of my idols. And I watched as a child growing up through to 70, oh, very late 70s, 80s, and 90s. And uh, well, thank you very much for your time today, Gordon. Welcome to Duckman TV, Weekend Warriors.
1: Good to be with you, Matt, the Duckman. And uh, yeah, no, lots of. Fond memories over those eras that you spoke of, and we can probably touch on a few today.
0: Absolutely. I appreciate that. So, uh, Would you be able to give everybody a little bit of a rundown on your experience in getting into rugby, how that came about, and uh, sort of what laid out the formative years in you getting into rugby union?
1: Well, I was just an average kid, actually born in the eastern suburbs, but my father was a cinema proprietor. And uh, he was uh, managing the theatre at Concord West, uh, which was great for a young kid because uh, when you had a birthday party, we always had a, uh, a theatre party. I could invite the whole class, which meant I got sometimes 45 presents. But we moved out to the western suburbs and we lived in Burwood. And uh, across the road, my best mate growing up, uh, who's now a prominent lawyer in Sydney, his family had a big sheep paddock. So that's where we used to play a lot of our sport. We'd play cricket down there. Uh, that was interesting, but more interesting was, was rugby because you had to dodge the, the sheep droppings uh, a lot <laughs> of the time. and You'd come home with stains on your clothes, which didn't impress my mother. But um, we'd watch the ABC match of the day on television. Uh, and I'm talking about the back in the early sixties and even uh, the late fifties when rugby on television first started. But uh, we'd watch the match of the day. Then we'd go out into the, into the paddock, the sheep paddock, with a ball, and we'd have a few other neighbourhood kids. And um, I'd usually do the commentary, reenacting what had happened in the, in the match of the day. And quite often it was Ramwick playing, and they were full of wallabies. And my hero was the scrum half for Ramwick, who became Australian captain and became a legendary player, a Hall of Fame player, Ken Catchpole. So I was Ken Catchpole, he was a scrum half and I always wanted to be a scrum half and that's the way it panned out. So yeah, at primary school, played a bit of uh, rugby league at primary school and also the West's Junior Rugby Union, went on my first rugby tour when I was eight years of age to South Australia. Uh When I got to high school at Homebush High, um, it was rugby all the way. Played a little bit of uh, league, played a little bit of Jersey flag. Um, My club team was Concord United. So I played a little bit of Jersey flag, had a few games for Western suburbs, but it was always going to be rugby union and spent what three years in the first 15, the last as captain couple of years with combined high schools, then went to Eastern suburbs and had a year and a half in, in lower grades uh, before I saw the cadetship with the ABC. And that was pretty well the end of my serious rugby career. You have it in a nutshell.
0: That's a good story to tell. So when you're around, uh, and Bill were playing, so did you have much uh, experience with Briars at all, so Briars Rugby Club or Briars Sports Club in general?
1: Well, that was my first rugby club. My father okay. took me down to the Briars Club and uh, it was the under eights, I, I believe, and uh, that was my introduction to rugby union. I had an instant uh, affection. A lot of my mates were playing down there and that led to getting a run with the West's junior team, which went over to South Australia and And I thought that was Absolutely right up there at the summit of the mountain. So, uh, yeah, Briars Rugby Club, who celebrated their centenary just a couple of years ago, was my first rugby team.
0: Oh, that's very good. So, I have a bit of an affiliation with them and uh, I commentate a lot of the third division games. So, I try to do the best I can to promote the games. And they're a very forthcoming club, they're open and community based, and it's very, very good. They've got many arms to Briars Club through in that ball well so he, oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Terrific, terrific facilities and uh, um, a, a wonderful bunch of people um, Wayne Erickson I think also uh, the test referee who's now um, very prominent in rugby administration on the referee side I think he was uh, another ex-Briars man as well probably more cricket um, I think I might have even played a, a few games of cricket for Briars and certainly against them uh, in those early days uh, before I hit my teens.
0: Very nice oval. They've, up done, they've done up the uh, clubhouse at the moment They've got a delightful scoreboard there when you're playing a game of rugby and probably putting in the game of cricket too if you're out in the middle, batting away. So he's looking up at the people in the stand, So
1: That's a great setting.
0: Yeah, it is impressive. So uh, One of the things I wanted to talk to you about today was the history of the game and you... Uh, that you can do this and you know some information will be of great help to me in promoting the game so i want to go back to the fundamentals of how the story of how it all began with william webb ellis back at the rugby school of Warwickshire 1823 like effectively picked up ball in a game of football or soccer as like known commonly in australia and ran it straight and ran it with and conviction and was not frowned upon, but he's definitely started the movement of rugby union. So, what well, can you shed light on that situation? What do you know about that and other helpers?
1: Well, I probably know as much as you and, and, and most others, but it's a very romantic tale. Some suggest it's uh, extremely mythical, but as you say, Webb Ellis was playing in, in a massed football game at rugby school in 1823, when he had that inspired moment to pick up the ball and, and run with it. And that apparently was the defining moment of when rugby started. Um, I like to believe in in fairy tales and romance, so I'll go along with it. He actually was buried in France, and it's quite a tourist attraction now, his grave uh, in France. So he is acknowledged as the man who started rugby union, but clearly it was a game that was played in, the, in the, the private schools that the leading schools in England, really, probably you look at seven or eight, um, and those schools, uh, middle-class schools where the parents mainly came from landed gentry, wanted the best education for their sons, so they were sent uh, to these private schools, and rugby school was one of those. And um, it became um, very much part of uh, the moral compass, I suppose, of education of young men uh, in that particular era. And we're talking about, you know, the middle um, to the second half of the 19th century. So rugby um, was played in the private schools that then spread to the north of England, um, which was very much the working class. And that created all sorts of problems when we got towards the end of the the 19th century because uh, a lot of um, under the table payments were made to those working class players and this was really frowned upon by the rugby football union based uh, um, in obviously at twickenham and uh, the east india club in london so they said no rugby must remain amateur and eventually, um, three clubs were expelled by the RFU, three northern clubs, and the, um, the working class played against the middle class teams. But there was a, quite a fierce rivalry there. And it became quite tribal. And then uh, in about 1792, I think, was the year, the northern rugby clubs, 22 of them, broke away from the RFU, the Rugby Football Union, and formed uh, their own union where players could be played. And that was the start of rugby league. It it spread to Australia uh, around about 1908 and uh, rugby league broke away. And yeah, I've done a little bit of research on this and and really um, in the First World War, most of the rugby players in New South Wales went away to the First World War. Everyone in the Sydney competition, I I would say about 80% of the young men signed up. But um, the Irish Catholics um, were against uh, conscription and uh, and what it stood for, and they remained behind, and they kept going with rugby league, and that's where rugby league really flourished during the First World War. There was no rugby union played at all because all the players were overseas. And Herb Moran, who was the um, first Wallaby skipper in 1908, and, and he was a surgeon on a hospital ship I think in the Aegean Sea and during First World War in 1915, sent a telegram over to all the rugby league players saying that you should be over here. We are now fighting the biggest game of all. And if you don't come and join us, you know, we could be on the receiving end for a long time. So, yeah, there was um, a little bit of rivalry, animosity even between rugby union and rugby league. And it all came down to working class and middle class. Not so much in Australia, though, because... Uh, when rugby league players break away in 1908 um, the rugby union players came from all walks of life and you had um, people from middle class mixing with the working class and doing it very happily so it all came down to payment and uh, it took what until 1995 for rugby to finally go professional you could say uh, screaming drag screaming and (laughs) kicking but, but they got there
0: I had the pleasure of interviewing David Moffat earlier in the year, and uh, he told me a lot about how he was um, really right in the mix at the time. He was the CEO of New South Wales Rugby, and he helped uh, set up Dan and brokered a $555 million TV rights deal with Fox Sports and everything for the broadcast at Rugby Union, and that that changed the landscape of rugby forever. All of a sudden, it went from being amateur to being professional. Uh, People could make a genuine living out of it that lifted the standard of players because they didn't have to work full-time anymore they could dedicated to rugby and just change everything and and that really seemed to have been fundamental and it flowed on the other sports end so we saw the outcome of league and rugby league and stuff like that and around the same time I had the ITV TV deal with um, the English Premier League and soccer It went from English League one to the Premier League and all sport became more professional or Really, it went up a whole bunch of different levels of the world. You know? um... he's a very yeah, he's a
1: very capable administrator um, in both rugby and and rugby league, and um, he worked across the the ditch as well as you as you've mentioned. Yep. But um, yeah, I had a bit to do with David Moffat. Um, I went to interview him one day. Uh, he was living in a suburb called Gordon in the, on the North Shore, and uh, it was a beautiful street just lovely homes. And he had a two-story place. And I said, you couldn't point me to the worst house in the street, could you? <laughs> and, uh, and he said, well, look, there's a place two doors down. They're a very elderly couple. It was just a modest Californian bungalow, but on half an acre. And uh, he said, why don't you just knock on the door and, uh, and see what happens? And I said, oh, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. We were living two suburbs closer into the city at, at Linfield Anyway, I drove past and said, no, bugger it. I'm going to knock on the door. So I knocked on the door and this little old guy came to the door and he said, yes, can I help you? And I said, oh, how do you do? And he said, before I could continue, he said, you're not Tim Bray's son, are you? And I said, oh, my God. He, I said, I am. And my father had died Um probably 40 years earlier, but we have very strong genes uh, on the on the male side of the, the Bray family. Yes. And uh, so I have a close resemblance to my father, and he picked it up, and I said, uh, yes, I am. He said, I was best mates with your father during the war, and he actually saved my bacon. When I went AWOL, he got me back into camp. So, bang. That's where... Um, we ended up purchasing that house um, several years later. Uh, it was a talk about fate playing its hand, but um, an incredible coincidence. And uh, yeah, we finished up raising our children there in Gordon um, on that beautiful block of land.
0: That's a very impressive story, particularly being able to pick up and uh, re-engage with like, one of your dad's best friends or your dad's best mate, so many yeah. years later in life. It's stories like that they're they're almost tear-jerking they just make you feel good about everything that everything about society and about people there's not enough of that anymore
1: it's it's eerie almost and um you you think well that's almost divine intervention isn't it yeah (laughs) i just couldn't work it out but i went home to my wife and um i said look we're going to buy that place. I don't know how we're going to do it and I don't know how we're going to manage it, but I know <laughs> it's going to happen. And eventually it did happen um, against a few obstacles, but uh, it was certainly a game-changing moment for the family.
0: So was David Moffat able to help give you a slice of that $555 million TV rights deal to buy that house at all, so? yeah.
1: <laughs> No, well, he was, he was the man who, who inspired me to go and knock on the door. Yeah. So I owe him big time. But also, he was a very good first-grade referee, and um, I recall uh, we were doing a trans-Tasman championship, under-17 trans-Tasman championship, so we had Auckland, Auckland under-17, I think Wellington under-17, New South Wales, Queensland, ACT, so it was a really interesting competition at Victoria Barracks, and uh, I was a touch judge, um, assistant referee, as they're called now, and David Moffat was refereeing. He was doing a match between Auckland and uh, New South Wales under 17 and uh, he was upsetting the Auckland boys because he kept penalising them for going off their feet and uh, I think actually I think they had a a reasonable case. I think he was being a little um, overly harsh on them. Anyway, um, he got caught in a ruck and the Auckland (laughs) forwards saw the opportunity to absolutely pile on top of him and he he disappeared from sight. I couldn't believe it. You talk about strange things happening on a referee field, on a, on a rugby field. David Moffat disappeared under this bevy of Auckland under 17 bodies and uh, twisted his knee totally. and had to be carried off on a stretcher, which meant that I had to go out and, and referee and finish <laughs> off the game. And uh, yeah, I think Auckland actually won. So that proves that I'm a very partisan objective referee. Oh. But also playing playing in that tournament for the Queensland uh, under seventeen team, and I got to referee them as well. Uh, one Daniel Herbert, World Cup winner, and also Pat Howard, um, another famous Wallaby. So yeah, that was that was really good fun. But poor old David Moffat, the worst for wear, he finished up in hospital, and uh, I finished up you know having a beer with the players. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Where was Daniel Herbert playing, number twelve that day, and Pat Howard playing in at ten, or was he playing fullback on the Albert. wing?
1: Pat was number ten, and yeah. Dan Herbert was number twelve, and you could see their quality then. I mean, Herbert was just a um, stout, robust, hard-running centre, and uh, he just broke the line. And uh, he really, he and Pat Howard really stood out for that Queensland team.
0: That's outstanding So Okay, <laughs> we'll get back to some of the questions that. That's a, that's a good story. I like got those got sorts of You got stories. off track
1: a bit, there, Yeah,
0: we did. So, um, who were some of the notable stars who were coming through in the 50s, 60s and 70s? Like, you phrase, Ken Cashpole is your favourite player. So, were you one of those kids like me? I used to play for you and you run and you go, Austin puts the step on, he's tipped over the top, he's re oh, it's a try. <laughs> you can do that sort of stuff during the games or...?
1: Yeah, no, I did. I, I definitely did. Uh, not so much during the games. I would listen intently. So, uh, yeah. So, when you say the fifties, I probably only started following in the in the late fifties, yeah. and uh, and that's when the games were televised for the first time, uh, the rugby on ABC TV. But following the, a lot of those players, the Randwick side clearly were um, a, a brilliant team, and they played running rugby, uh, the famous Galloping Greens. They had some terrific battles with the likes of Sydney University, who also had a lot of wallabies, but they were such fun times. Norman May was the commentator. Cyril Towers was the the expert in those days, and he was always complaining at the start of the telecast to Norman that these footballs are overinflated, Norman. It's just not a reliable bounce, and without without doubt, without fail, every telecast, Cyril would complain about the overinflated footballs, but that was um, it was it was magical stuff. And then, as I say, you'd you'd go off, um, you'd have your heroes, and uh, you'd you'd replay uh, those games uh, in the sporting fields in the local parks with your with your mates and the neighbourhood kids, and uh, that was where it all started.
0: And those were the days. I love those sorts of days. I've got stories of them too. I can bring up from the eighties and the nineties, growing up as a. Child, then as a teenager, and then you get a little bit too old and a little bit too cool for that anymore. And you meet girls and watch football and all that sort of stuff. So, um, I was interested, I was too interested in uh,
1: in in sport, I think, to worry about girls at that stage. It, but, uh, <laughs> it does change. It does change. Yes,
0: it definitely um, does.
1: Probably up till about sixteen, I was very focused on uh, on my two sports were cricket and rugby. And uh, yeah, it was almost 24
0: yeah, seven I was, days. I was like cricket, uh, soccer and rugby until I got to about 20. And then that just started to get work in that as well. And work really quite a hindrance into my professional slash football career, which never really took off or went anywhere near any great magnitude. Who so, did you your meeting? You, you had, uh, had fun. You, yeah, and I you did have fun.
1: You had fun, you played with your mates. And it gave you a, um, a standard, a set of standards, uh, how to conduct yourself on, on the playing field and how to conduct yourself in, in life. Uh, that's what rugby offers. And uh, so in that sense, it doesn't matter what level you play at. Um, it's your way of having your rugby fix, your playing fix and doing it with your mates and then being able to socialize. That's, that's the beauty of the game
0: rugby is very different. So I played many, many different sports. I like. I went to a public school. I went to Cambridge Park, which is near Amrith. And I had the exposure at school. I managed to play softball, baseball, hockey. I played soccer for years. I played rugby, play rugby, league. Friday, I think I tried my hand at nearly every sport I had on offer. And that's one thing you get to do in Australia that you might not really get to try. I was going to speak to people from other countries and say, in England, you're either a league person or you're a rugby person. If you're a football person, that's what you do. There's you don't really bounce around between. Oh, this year I'm going to do this, or on Saturdays I'm going to play with my mates, I'm going to play rugby another day. You're going to play touch football another day. It's not really like that, is it?
1: No, no. I think um, it doesn't. It, what you're saying is, although you you didn't go to a, a private school, you went to a, a public school, the state school, um, as I did. And uh, the opportunities are still there uh, in the in the school holidays. You can attend sporting camps. Uh, you know, Department of Sport and Recreation. There are always those opportunities. So that was always there, and and you could go to any sporting club in your area, whether it be soccer or rugby league or hockey, whatever cricket, um, and you could be involved. So as you say, we have that freedom of choice in Australia, and uh, we we have the. The beautiful weather conditions, even in winter, um, you, you know, you get days where it's like the middle of summer. So we're very lucky in that regard, and we have a lot of open space, a lot of parks and playing fields and sporting facilities, and a lot yeah. of support now from the from the government, state government, and the federal government to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to be involved. There's a real focus on sporting activity because that's healthy. Um, that's it's right. healthy development as kids. And uh, also your your education and and respect of teammates and and opposition players, that's all part of the deal.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Often character building and helps um, make people know who they are, who they become. So it teaches you win and lose and be respectful and be able to take instruction and deliver that and help shape who the people are now. So grandchildren, mm-hmm. I've got a grandson who plays under sixes rugby league now and. He loves it and they get the most enjoyment, the are watching play. Uh, it's amazing.
1: I've only so, got one child. Um, yeah. and she is 17 months. So she's over in London. Yeah, um, She's going to be sporty. I can tell you, my daughter's <laughs> over there and uh, they're based in London. And uh, little Eva Rose is on the go. She <laughs> is on the go. Um, we're convinced she's going to be sporty because she just takes off. And uh, she doesn't stop, and she uh, she's not very sociable. She just entertains herself. And, yep. uh, and in fact, mum has been the only time mum gets any affection is when Eva Rose is sick. You know, okay. she's not. 100%. That's when she needs a bit of affection. Otherwise, uh-huh. she's off and doing her own thing. Yep. So that's yep. going to be very. We get haven't you know been with her yet. We're yep. hoping to get over there at some stage before the end of the year, yep. uh, which I'll really be looking forward to. But um, yeah, that's one of the frustrations of this pandemic.
0: Yeah, unfortunately. So, um, how did your media career as a sports broadcaster take shape? And I know that you previously said that Norman Nugget May was one of your idols as a person crumbling through to media, particularly as a young man. He would have been about 40 when he started working with you, I imagine, and he's well versed. So, what was that like?
1: Yeah, well, um, to answer the first part of your question, I applied for a cadetship with ABC Sport uh, yep. and I, at the time I'd really only been out of school for just over a year, I was still a teenager. And uh, I was working for the late Bob Oatley, um, the, the man who uh, you know, started Rosemount Wines and then owned Hamilton Island and Wild Oats um, 11, the famous super maxi. Uh, so he was a, um, a very successful businessman and he was importing coffee and cocoa beans from Papua New Guinea and uh, he employed me out of school and, and uh, he was going to send me up there to manage one of his coffee stores. Uh, <laughs> so there would have been no rugby calling up there, that's for sure. <laughs> but I saw the ad in the paper, applied for it and got it. Uh, Drew Morford, the late Drew a uh, wonderful commentator, took me through um, my audition, which was quite a, uh, rigorous. And uh, we managed to get through and uh, two years training uh, in Sydney. Some of the other trainees were interesting. Bob Carr was a current oh, affairs really? trainee, yes. Um, the guy who started Triple J, uh, Marius Webb was another trainee in, in music or drama. Um, Alan Humphreys. Do you remember Alan Humphreys, the weatherman on the ABC? Yeah. Um, he was a trainee. So, yeah, it was a very interesting, eclectic group of people. And the- <coughs> Pardon me, before me, there were people like Drew Morford, uh, Peter Mears, um, who went up to Brisbane, um, very very good commentators. After me, um, Jimmy Maxwell, the voice of cricket. Uh, he started just a few years after I did, and uh, we were actually mates even uh, before he joined the ABC. Uh, we were actually playing a bit of sport together through other contacts. So it was a real production line of, of um, specialist trainees that came in, came to the fore. And then the idea was you got transferred to a so-called Bath State, which be Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, or Hobart. Drew Morfitt went to Perth, Peter Mears went to Hobart initially, and then up to Brisbane. And I got promoted to Hobart. And uh, I had four years down there calling anything and everything that moved. Fantastic experience. I stumbled many times. I nearly drowned many times, um, figuratively speaking, but uh, just had terrific experience. And that really set me up for further opportunities when I came back to Sydney. And I met Norman May the first day I arrived in the office as a cadet in uh, 164 William Street. And uh, he said, how are you, Gordo? When are we going to the pub? And uh, I said, well, Mr. May, I don't think I should be going today, my first day. And um, this is the famous story where I met him the following Saturday night. He insisted I give him his, my pay packet all $29. And he said, we'll put it through the pokies and uh, we'll double it for you. And uh, yeah, it was, it was lost in the twinkling of an eye. So I was penniless then for the next week, but uh, a great character, Norman, uh, a lot of the early time there. And when I was training, you would go out to sporting events and you'd probably be a scorer or a statistician for Norman when he was calling the rugby or calling Sheffield Shield cricket or test cricket. The ABC used to do the last session of the Sheffield Shield match uh, each day's play from from four o'clock and so I'd be out there. We'd be out there for the whole day at the SCG and uh, the telecast would start at about ten to four and Norman uh, would take it through and um, I would be like a scorer. You didn't get the opportunity to to commentate at that point. They didn't think you were ready but uh, you'd roll up at a, at a shoot shield game. Um, I remember one day at Manly Oval, at five minutes to three, I was sitting up in the scaffold, the ABC scaffold, Manly and North actually, and uh, I was ready to do the scoring. And the director came through, I had the headphones on, I like to put the headphones on and pretend I was going to be the commentator. And the director said, nugget hasn't turned up Gordon, you may have to call this. And I said, what? Okay, I'm ready to go, I can do it, yeah. And uh, anyway, so the adrenaline really got pumping. And then at one minute to three, Norman May screeched. I heard the tires screech outside that brick wall um, at the northern end of Manly Oval. And I looked over the scaffold and sure enough, it was Norman and Ken Catchpole, who was the expert commentator that day. And they scrambled up the, the ladder to the top of the scaffold. Norman jumped in the seat. He said, hello, Gordo, who's playing? And, uh, and I just looked at him. I said, oh, Mr. May gave him the headphones and he said, May here, standing by. And Ken Catchpole put his headphones on and bang, away they went. Q. Norman. Well, it's a, a lovely day here at Manly Oval and uh, we've just witnessed a remarkable reserve grade fixture and he's looking at the scoreboard and Manly has won by 18 points to 15. And I thought, how can he say that? He wasn't even there. But anyway, he went on and did the commentary, and it was a flawless commentary. I've got to say, I I was just awestruck to think that he could do it. Afterwards, I said, "Mr. May, how could you possibly say that reserve grade game was uh, such an extraordinary fixture?" He said, "No problem, no problem. We were watching from the RSL club across the road, (laughs) so he'd actually (laughs) the reserve grade uh, having a drink (laughs) through the window." And uh, that was Norman May. He was a remarkable character. And he was the benchmark for broadcasters in Australia. Um, he, he called everything. He was Mr. Olympics. Uh, I'd liken him to a, a Bruce McIvaney today. Yep. Uh, very versatile. Um, outstanding mind. Uh, just a steel trap. Brilliant retention of sporting facts and figures. Gave the impression he didn't do any homework, but he did. And uh, he had a photographic memory but he had a real sense of um, entertainment and, uh, and drama and theater when it was needed. Um, and he was just a fantastic mentor, someone who you could observe and, and see how he worked yes. and uh, see how he performed. And uh, it was always at a very high level.
0: So you yourself have been involved in nine Olympic games and five Commonwealth games. So, What's your biggest highlight out of all of those experiences you've had with the Games and Olympics?
1: Well, I got my, my first break. I was in Hobart in 1974, The end, coming towards the end of my stint in Hobart, and the ABC decided they were going to send a, a young commentator, uh, from someone from around Australia. I, I thought maybe Drew Morford or Peter Mears would get the gig. They were more senior to me. Um, I'd worked very hard in Hobart and made a good impression. There was another young guy there, Graham McNaney, So I thought, look, I'd be a chance. And this was really breaking with tradition because all of the senior ABC callers, uh, people like um, Dick Mason, Norman May, uh, Noel Bailey, um, Ken Dakin, these were all very senior sports commentators, very versatile, Arthur Denovan. And uh, I thought, I'm a rough chance, but when they announced the, the team, there was a young man in there. It wasn't Drew, it wasn't Peter Mears. It was Graham McNaney, my my colleague in Hobart. And um, he was a very talented commentator, but I was absolutely devastated that I'd missed out. And um, as events turned out, he invited me to his barbecue. And uh, I've told this story many times. He was cooking my steak on the barbecue and a brick fell off the barbecue. Someone knocked it. It wasn't me. (laughs) Fell straight onto onto his foot. And he was only wearing thongs. And it no. fell onto his brick toe on the edge, the edge of the brick fell full force onto his brick toe, onto his foot, onto his thumb, onto his onto his um, toe, yeah. and uh, yeah, and broke his broke his toe, his big toe. So he was ruled unfit to travel, and the call came through next day that Gordon, you're going to Christchurch as part of the ABC team. I think I was the the nearest person to Graham. Um, in terms of geography, and uh, it was just a matter of changing the, the name on the airline ticket to get me to Sydney. So that was, that was a massive break, and uh, that got me onto the Games team. I didn't do a lot over there. Uh, I saw one of the outstanding performances there was Philbert Bay from Tanzania in the men's 1500 metres. John Walker, the great Kiwi 1500 metre runner, was probably the local favourite, most definitely, But Philbert Bae decided to just shoot out in the lead and he opened up a a big break on the field, probably, what, 40 metres, and kept going at this incredible pace. And in the end, he smashed the world record. I think the first four runners were under the world record for 1,500 metres. And John Walker stormed home into second place, a gallant run. But that was quite incredible to see something like that. But that was my first experience of a games, shared a, a motel room with Dick Mason, uh, the, wow. the great broadcaster from Melbourne, the late Dick Mason. Uh, he, he was an AFL caller. He did cricket. Basketball was one of his loves and also baseball. In fact, he was a, um, a peewee baseball umpire and uh, he was a very large man. He was uh, yeah. certainly overweight. And um, he had a Datsun 240Z, a sports car. And one of the funniest things I've ever seen was Dick Mason rolling up to the ABC studios in Melbourne after he'd um, umpired a a baseball game, a pee-wee baseball game and all his baseball gear and trying to get out of this 240Z. He had to actually leverage himself out backwards and and go on his back onto the ground (laughs) to actually get out of the car. So uh, he was a great character. I remember he wore the same pair of trousers for three weeks. Um, he used to hang them up over the coat hanger and, and they'd hang down and that's all he had. He only just arrived with a little um, sort of airline bag and that's they were the clothes. <laughs> a few pairs of underpants and socks and just basically one pair of trousers. And <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I couldn't get my head around that. But um, yeah, that's probably a little bit too much information. but. Um, <laughs> He, I can he, was, he was a terrific commentator
0: I can relate to being a big guy getting out of a little car i ran some very little cars back in the day and had a Mitsubishi cancer and uh, I had to straight and at 6 foot 5 and 150 odd kilos it's uh, not the easiest it's not easy of-
1: I have trouble getting out of my car now <laughs> um, and uh, yeah it's, you've, you've got to be a little bit self-conscious haven't you When when make sure no one's watching
0: yeah, that's right. So um, through the 70s, 80s and 90s, come back to rugby, um, how do you think some of the rule changes have uh, affected the game from them rolling forward into now? So?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think if you go back to the 60s when I really was taking a keen interest, to, you could kick the ball out on the fall from anywhere on the field. So that, was, that led to a lot of negative rugby and um, it didn't really encourage um, running rugby. Uh, I think the Fijians, when they came to Australia in the early 50s, certainly turned that all around with their brilliant running style, their love of ball in hand and support play and spreading it all over the field. And, and they probably saved Australian rugby uh, with those tours in 52 and 1954. They packed out uh, the Sydney cricket ground and that saved the finances of, of, of Australian rugby. So that was an important one where you could only kick it from inside your 22 when that was changed. I think um, uh, the idea of quick lineouts, um, those rules that have come in that have sped up the game where you can have a quick lineout, um, that's been very positive. Um, lifting in the lineout. I remember going to South Africa in 1992 with the Wallabies, and um, we noticed that there was a lot of lifting going on with these giant South African men. So you had no hope of actually trying to jump naturally. Uh, to win a line out against them so that was a development and I think people the administrators saw the the benefits there that not so much the lifting but uh, supporting the jumper at the top of the jump you could do that so that sort of crept in and then finally I think about maybe it was about 14 years ago um, lifting in the line out was allowed so you get a a lot of variation now, and a, and a lot of a bit, a lot of ability to um, get a clean line out ball to the backs and get things moving. So, moving uh, the back line five meters back from the scrum, um, I'd like to see that ten meters back from the scrum actually. And uh, I think there's so much opportunity from the set piece, particularly when you've got eight forwards um, together in that um, confirmation, and only seven backs out there. That's the opportunity to really. Um, develop some uh, attacking ploys and take advantage of the space and the, and the reduced numbers. And I think a lot of teams these days ignore that particular element of the game uh, for the backs um, where you do um, have extra space from a set piece. You've got that extra five metres with the defensive line. And, uh, you know, I, I think teams should be more focused on taking attacking opportunities from the scrum.
0: So how do you think a development like that, if I had to come in, let's say, the 80s, it would have helped, like, one of the great attacking sides. They say that the Grand Slam, Ollie side of 1984 is one of our greatest ever attacking sides. And that was really my first foray into following rugby. I was only young. I was only six or seven. Um, my memory of that's sketchy compared to what your memory would be. So like that would really have helped Mark and Gary Ella and or plays at Campese, or plays outside of them, Michael Wine and yeah. Nick Carl Jones, said. Yeah, well,
1: they were um, 1984. Um, I think that was the, the Grand Slam tour, as you say. I was over there calling those games. I was, actually, my wife had only just been married, so that was our honeymoon. Can you think <laughs> of a better way to spend your honeymoon? Best seat in the house at all of those <laughs> great drums. And um, yeah, that was uh, a very interesting formation. We didn't see a lot of scrum collapses in those days. Um, you put the ball in the scrum and you got on with it. Australia had a, a terrific scrum, a very strong front row, and, uh, and people like Steve Williams and Steve uh, Cutler in the second row, um, Steve Tymon, uh, the great Simon Poiteman, terrific pack of forwards and and brilliant backs. You mentioned uh, Mark Eller. Nick Farr-Jones, Michael Liner, David Campisi, Roger Gould. Boy, uh, they, they were magnificent players. And we saw a more direct plo- approach uh, from the Aussie backs in those days. Um, I'm so pleased in the most recent French test, um, uh was a lot more direct. He was attacking uh, the defensive line. He was committing defenders and... Uh, That's the first time I've seen him really play that way at test level, and boy, what a difference it made. And that was a forte of that 84 Grand Slam team of Mark Eller, where you were actually in close contact with the defensive line and actually committing defenders rather than just transferring pressure to to people further outside you. So, yeah, um, it was a very interesting formation. It, It started, I suppose, with Bob Dwyer, in in 1982, but also with the Eller brothers, when they came in, in, Mark Eller came in in 1980 and Michael Hawker, when they played that series against New Zealand. And a lot of those Australian schoolboys, uh, those backs in particular, um, came into the Wallaby team. That schoolboy team of 77, 78, that went through Britain undefeated. Uh, Wally Lewis couldn't get a run in the starting team. Tony Melrose was the captain. You had Mark, Glenn, and Gary Eller. Michael Hawker, Michael O'Connor. So, yeah, that style of play came from another Randwick man, Jeff Mould, uh, that, that formation of, of standing close together, standing close to the um, defensive line and uh, running hard and straight uh, with the ball, quick hands and support play, support running lines, very important. And, uh, yeah, so that was, you look back at that tape now, of 1984, the highlights tape that the ABC put out. I often get it out and and have a look, and a lot of those principles certainly still apply today.
0: Well, you see Mark Heller take the ball straight up at the line, which is unusual. The number 10 now will tend to get the ball and start to drift, so with the ball across the park and take away room from the outside backs. but Mark Heller, as a coach, so coach as well, look at him, attack the line and draw to seven and the eight into... Make a commitment to tackle and start numbers on the outside then and create room for the outside backs. It's, yeah. they play like that now, look. You're, no, taking, you're right, I think, I think term, New, Zealand, can...
1: New Zealand picked up a lot from us, uh, from that style of play going back into the early 80s. And uh, now you look at the New Zealand team and they their running lines are very straight and direct. And uh, they're all about creating space out wide. And they do it very successfully, particularly on the counter-attack.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, I thought, um, there's only one thing I suppose. Rugby now, I watched young Tate McDermott the other day in the third test. I picked the ball up a lot for a nine. I would play the nines, a box kick the ball. He looked a box kick an awful lot. So, maybe should, the game is changing. But, yeah, I would like to see him run a bit more ball in hand. Got a lot of talent and potential So. Different,
1: yes. Yeah, he, he got some quick ball there, and and he does like to run. That's his forte. Um, yeah. But clearly, a halfback in this modern game has to have that extra string of uh, a good, a reliable, accurate box kick. Yeah. Um, we're going to we'll see a lot of it in the uh, Lions, British and Irish Lions, South Africa series. Faf de Klerk, um, he's pinpoint accurate, and uh, yeah, it's it's part of the game now. Unfortunately, but Tate McDermott. Um, does have really good pace off the mark and good acceleration. And uh, yeah, I'd like to see him still be prepared to, to run uh, a little bit more. And there yeah. were half gaps there that he could easily have taken in that last French test um, yeah. where he, he actually then passed. So he is a guy who can worry a defence, but have a run if you get quick ball and, uh, and commit the defenders. And uh, if you're not going to take the gap yourself, Put someone else through.
0: That's right. So in 1991 Rugby World Cup, that was pretty much a landmark event for you and the the Wallabies. Ultimately, won the World Cup. So on the back of very strong performances, beats Samoa in the group stages, I think. So and then we rolled into the quarterfinal against Ireland, and it looked like we we're going to drop that game. And we just come. What was your takeaway on that game?
1: Well, that was um, it was horrible. When Gordon Hamilton scored the try, I can tell you, I was, I, I looked at my fellow commentators, Chris Handy and Gary Pearce, and uh, they were as white as ghosts. You'd you think there'd been a death in the family. We looked at each other and said, oh my goodness, we could be going home. or well, we wouldn't be going home, but the Wallabies could be going home. And uh, that's where we didn't say anything for 31 seconds. I timed it, but deliberately didn't say anything because the jubilation, the euphoria of the Irish fans who ran out on the field um, was just palpable. Uh, It would have been criminal to say anything at that point. But uh, probably the most dramatic game I've called involving the Wallabies. And uh, when they won that game, we were in the pubs afterwards with Buddha and Gary Pearson. The Irish fans were pretty devastated. But after an hour, a guy, an Irish fan came up and said, hi, I'm Paddy. And I've got to say, um, Ireland's now the second best team in the world because we've just lost to the best. And uh, I was very confident we'd go on and and win uh, the final after that performance. It had been a terrific campaign all the way through, big win over Wales, um, a torrent match against Samoa, um, beating Argentina in the first game. So everything was on target. Uh, There was huge support back in Australia through the ABC Live telecasts. And, uh, yeah, the rest is history. That performance yeah. in the first half against New Zealand at the same ground, Lansdowne Road, was a near-perfect performance by the Wallabies. And uh, David Campese stole the show with the first try, and then that miracle passed to Tim Horan. And then the final was, as it turned out, England changed their game plan and, and really ran the ball at us and, and stretched Australia totally, but somehow we held on. We survived. It was a survival exercise and um, great work by Timmy Horan um, and Simon Poitavan just before him to, to set up that Horan break. And then the throw, Bob Dwyer, um, I did an interview with him recently and, and he said, that is the only time in the whole World Cup where we called a throw to Willie Offa-Hengawe. And uh, it actually went to Willie. I was so surprised <laughs> that Bill Kearns has stuffed this up. Went to Willie offer Hengawa and Bob Dwyer said, We knew that if we threw the ball to Willie, there was no chance he would drop it because he had the biggest hands he'd ever seen. They were like dinner plates. And uh, of course, Australia drove over the line for the only try of the game to Tony Daly. You and McKenzie and Tony Daly went over the line together. And in commentary, I said, give it to both of them. But Daly got the try. McKenzie certainly had grounded it as well. But, uh, yeah, it was a magnificent occasion for Australian rugby, surpassing even the Grand Slam to win the World Cup in
0: 1991. So that semi-final game from... I was going through the highlights of that again the other night, watching that, and out of all the games, I I haven't seen Campe play 101 tests. I've probably watched 40 or 50 of them. But that one game is the best game of rugby I've ever seen him play, in my opinion. So... Might not be you've seen many more games. I'm sure you've seen him play better games from the the time. But his involvement, everything he did was at the highest level he could do every time. Pass, no look, pass, drawing two players on the outside to Tim Horan away. That was a good try. Counter run across field. There's one of the best tries you're ever gonna see. That um it's good to see the two prop get in there in the final and score tries, yeah. not see goaling in the corner either. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I think Campo is probably the, the greatest entertainer um, I've, I've called um, as a commentator. And um, that semi-final, as you say, um, the All Blacks were spooked by him. That Certainly that try where he ran diagonally towards the corner post, they held off. They just didn't know what he was going to do. I don't think Camper knew what he was going to do either. That was the beauty of David Campisi. <laughs> Um, his teammates didn't know what he was going to do, and half the time he didn't, let alone the poor old opposition. <laughs> and Campo was one of those instinctive, unpredictable players, you know, one in a million, really. And uh, he, he rightly was player of the tournament in 1991. He had a sensational
0: tournament. Yeah, well, he had sensational players then, and so good to have those players. How do you think that team would go in modern-day rugby? Because it's changed a lot more now. It's completely professional. Yeah. And uh, the standard of opposition is probably, bars probably down a little bit compared to what it was maybe three or four years ago when every side seemed to be a bit stronger. But they're regenerating with youth throughout most of world rugby at the moment, so which is the first time in a little while they've done that, but most of the nations seem to be doing it. Yeah. So,
1: I don't think you can, you, you, you can't compare eras, but you can compare quality. And I would say that 1991 Wallaby team, in terms of quality, um, holds up to any era. And yeah. it's probably backed up by the fact that I can count six players in that team who would make a world 15. And that's Bob Dwyer's famous line too. You need at least five players of your 15 who are, who would hold their own in a world 15. And certainly that Australian team um, had five players, if not six. And uh, yeah, they were um, a quality side. They had a many different um, aspects to their game. They could play a tight game. They could play an expansive game. They could find the balance when needed. And they knew how to win as we saw against the Irish. And then in the final against England. So. Yeah, they hold up against the very best teams of any era.
0: You work with some outstanding commentators, as you mentioned before, Buddha Handy and Gary Pierce. What were those two guys like to work with? Buddha, he just seemed like he was the life of the party. Is that what he's like when you're working with the men?
1: Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed with Buddha. Probably a bit quieter these days. Gary Pierce was my first uh, expert commentator, and that was in France in 1976. That was my first Wallaby tour where I actually paid my own way over and the ABC broadcast the internationals from Bordeaux and Paris on radio. Yeah. And that was a real experience. I was there by myself, um, pretty well had no money as a young guy on an ABC wage. And I um, seconded Gary Pierce to join me in the commentary in the grandstand. We just sat in an open grandstand with all the spectators around us. The French technician spoke no English. Um, I had no idea if we were getting through to Australia. <laughs> um, he said, No, I don't, you know, he'd put his hands up. Um, <laughs> Je ne comprends pas, monsieur. You know, uh, anyway, apparently we did get through. And uh, I know we definitely got through because just before halftime, the famous story uh, Ken Wright, who was playing at, I think he was playing inside center or outside center, made a siding break and drew the French fullback, Droit and then pass to Laurie Monaghan, who scored under the posts. And Australia would have gone in at halftime with a nice lead. But the Irish, Scottish referee, Alan Hosey, ruled forward pass. And I kid you not, he was 20 metres behind the play. How he <laughs> was in a position to call forward. And it wasn't a forward pass, I can tell you. I was I was in line. We were right on halfway. And uh, anyway, Gary Pierce, uh, my expert commentator, said that is absolute bullshit. and then then realised what he'd said on on ABC National Radio. And I thought, well, I wonder if we are going through to Australia. I guess we'll find out at some stage in the future. Anyway, sure enough, I got a call. We lost the game, by the way. The tribe was disallowed. We lost at 18-15. And uh, so it was a game Australia uh, rightly deserved to win. We got smashed in the second test in Paris. But I got a call on the Monday from the head of sport in my hotel room in Bordeaux the late Bernard Kerr, hello, Gordon, uh, is that you? I said, oh, yes, Mr. Kerr. Mr. Kerr, before you go anywhere, I know why you're ringing and we've told that Australian spectator to keep well away from our microphone for the next broadcast. <laughs> oh, wasn't that Gary Pierce? No, Mr. Kerr, no, no, it was a, it was a bloody Australian spectator. <laughs> on our microphone, And uh, I was very, very angry, but we'll make sure he's nowhere near the microphone next time. Anyway, I saved Gary Pierce's bacon and uh, convinced the head of sport that uh, it wasn't him. And, uh, yeah, he then went on to a very successful commentating career. Um, he was a very good wallaby apart from that, but uh, a great guy and we're still friends.
0: That's fair. I like that story. So, <laughs> and you mentioned just before as well. That you, I didn't 20- tell you
1: about Buddha. You, d- you didn't ask me to follow up on Buddha.
0: Yeah, no, you haven't followed up on Buddy yet. So I've seen him do. I saw him dress up once as a woman. I can't remember what that was for. <laughs> I can not remember what that was oh, for. Someone wanted to roast shit.
1: Yeah, he would. He well, he had his uh, his wrestling suit that he always wore, uh, <laughs> under his, underneath his television garb. Yeah, and loved getting down to his wrestling suit when the night was uh, long and in the early hours. He used to go, when Australia had a big win in New Zealand, he had a ritual of going for a skinny dip in Auckland Harbour or Wellington Harbour or in the River, (laughs) the Avon River in Christchurch. And a couple of the players normally did too, Nick Farr-Jones and Tim Horan. Um, uh, He was a wonderful character, um, wore his heart on his sleeve and uh, he was very emotive in his calling. Um, He really gave us a feel for what it was like to pack into a scrum I don't want to know about anything to do with packing in a scrum but Buddha had that very colorful um, vocabulary and uh, way of describing how you know every sinew in your backside um, was working over time and your eyeballs were popping out and your eardrums were bursting um, <laughs> when you down against a particular player but um, there was one funny story with him I used to try and avoid him as much as possible on tour because he was normally taking a tour group. He was a tour leader and yeah. they used to lead him up the garden path all the time and get him into trouble. And, and quite often he'd, he'd come to a test match with only a few hours sleep under his belt, but always performed at a, at a magnificent level. But I remember um, channel seven decided we weren't going to stay in a hotel in Melbourne. We're going to stay in serviced apartments, And they said, Gordon, you're sharing with Buddha. And I said, Oh no. This is going to be very dangerous, very dangerous. Anyway, we after the test match, um, Buddha said, when I get back, uh, we'll, we'll have a drink. And any, I stayed up till about midnight. I'd had a few drinks after the game, stayed up till midnight. I thought he's not going to come in till about three o'clock. And um, so I'd locked my bedroom door. I locked it because I was catching a flight at 7am back to Sydney. And uh, sure enough, Knocking on the door, thumping on the door. Come out, you little bastard! (laughs) And um, I'm looking at my clock. My God, it's quarter past three. I know you're awake. Come on, you can hear me. And he's banging, and I refuse to come out. Anyway, uh, I got back to sleep, and then I snuck out at about uh, the alarm went, and I snuck out at five thirty, and I came out, and the lights were still on, the TV was still on, and there was Buddha in his underpants and nothing else. (laughs) His feet up on the table. He had a, a bowl of sultana bran, a fork in the other hand. His head was back and he was snoring. And on the TV were the cartoons. And I thought, I think to the today where you have a mobile phone, if only I could have got that shot. It, it was the most candid uh, shot you'll ever get of Chris Handy in his underpants with his sultana bran, his fork, and snoring and watching the cartoons. And I snuck out the door and closed the, the latch very softly and escaped back to Tullamarine Airport. But uh, it could have been very nasty, I must say. It could have been ugly. Uh, as it turned out, um, I had my sultana brand out at the airport.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to imagine that from a wallabies enforcer when he played prop. How many tests did he play for the wallabies? On the I
1: played probably six or seven, I think he played maybe six or seven tests, but he had three wins over the All Blacks, yeah. three test matches. So his percentage against the All Blacks is through the roof yeah. in the 1979, uh, then in, in 1980, uh, and also in 1978, the famous test where Greg Nelson scored four tries at Eden Park. And that's where Buddha was told he had to punch Andy Hayden in the first <laughs> line out. <laughs> and I think Buddha broke his. I think he broke his hand. <laughs> I'm Andy's, not sure, but anyway, Andy Hayden said you'll have to do better than that, son. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, that was a famous victory for Australia, uh, 30 points to 16. Greg Cornelson four tries, and Buddha was in the front row.
0: He's a very robust prop, and he's an affable person. Not the crowd and uh, the fans on a, TV can relate to him.
1: An ambassador for Bundaberg Rum. So he used to carry a little suitcase around of those mini Bundaberg rum bottles. And we always had a rum and coke. We always had a Bundy and coke um, before any telecast. And you you, you asked me about funny moments. The funniest moment, I think, was the day when the steward at Ballymore tripped over my uh, headset cord and he had a whole jug of Bundaberg rum and coke, which Buddha had ordered because we'd forgotten to have our little ritual before the game. And this was halfway through the first half and he tipped after tripping over my cord, he tipped half of the contents of the jug down the back of my neck while I was commentating Australia versus Wales. Mm -hmm. And from memory, Jason Little scored the try, but um, I kept going, (laughs) got the try out, but I couldn't get any comments out of Buddha and Gary Pierce because they were just cacking themselves in fits of (laughs) laughter. And there was just rum and Coke all over the, um, all over the equipment, all over my Uh, back of my neck and my coat and it had splashed onto the two expert commentators as well. So, yeah, Uh, never a dull moment with Chris Handy in the commentary box and outside the commentary box as well.
0: You've done many a tour around many places all over the world as well. Where are some of the great places to go, great pubs to have a drink and great place to have feed throughout the world that you've been You'd like really promote or drum up?
1: Well, I had uh, that tour of France. Uh, my first tour was, I was part of the touring team, really. The ARU made me a, an officially accredited member of the touring team. So I dined with the players and and uh, and drank with the players. Um, I went to the team meetings. I actually trained with the team as a young kid. I was about 25 then on that first tour. Um, so we went to lots of fun places there. A very special experience. It would never happen today. Um, I think Ireland's probably my favourite country to tour. When we, when we beat uh, Ireland in that game in the final in 1991, we went to a Japanese restaurant and uh, with a, uh, Tim Gavin was there and a, and a few other mates and we were actually dancing on the tables, singing Walsing Matilda. And then we went over to the old Belvedere rugby club across the road. We were politely asked to leave the Japanese restaurant in Donnybrook and we went over to the old Belvedere rugby club and one of the people in our party was the late great Paul Ramsey of Ramsey Healthcare fame and uh, Paul was a a huge Wallaby supporter very gregarious soul loved his rugby and uh, we were having a wonderful time celebrating the win and uh, we went to the old Belvedere rugby club and Paul went up to the little barman and slapped down what I reckon was about 500 bucks US dollars Mm -hmm. on the table and said, how do you do? I'm with my colleagues from Australia. My name's Paul Ramsey, and I want to shout the bar. And the whole place was absolutely teeming. And uh, the little uh, Irish barman looked up and looked at the $500 US dollars and said, oh, I'm sorry, sir, we only accept Irish punts. uh, (laughs) Couldn't get a drink. We couldn't get a drink there. He wouldn't accept US dollars. Can you believe it? So anyway, once the locals heard that we were going to shout the bar, we didn't have to buy a drink all night. And, uh, yeah, we were accepted as honorary Irishmen, I think, uh, on that occasion. So, yeah, Ireland's a very favourite place for me to tour. Um, yeah. If I look at other spots around the world, the Hong Kong 7s and probably covered the Sevens for more than a decade, and that's one big party and uh, having the opportunity of, of drinking carver with the Fijians at the Hilton Hotel in their hotel room after they won uh, the Hong Kong Sevens final against New Zealand uh, with Nick Far jones um, God, I was sick that night. I really, carver just does not agree with me. And I don't remember what happened. I don't even remember getting back to my room. But apparently, Nick says, we went out to a bar and, uh, and then came back in the early hours of the morning. It's all a blank to me. But, um, yeah, lots of fun times. And, uh, yeah, it's it's all about that socialising and having the opportunity to socialise with the players is, is really very special. And uh, that's been um, an opportunity afforded to me um, over a long period.
0: Yeah, that's what I think thing Rugby really offers, that some of the other sports don't. Like, uh, soccer's gotten to that professional level now, like, Players get weighed, but I'm aware of four games after games and all this stuff, and I'm not sure rugby does that. They're still of, uh, players at the end of your games. Oh, you want a beer? They're already walking down with two, and I said, you want one well, I'll have a beer. Now, yeah. knock back a couple of beers with people in the crowd, then they wander off and do their after-match function and whatever else comes with the proceedings. The
1: it's the joy of grassroots rugby, and um, it's, it's very sociable. Um, people... Uh, are generous, they're friendly, um, we all have a, um, a common connection and uh, it's, a, it's if it's the home team it's about being hospitable and uh, entering into the spirit of what it's all about.
0: I'm going to run a couple more questions by and I thank you for your time this afternoon, it's been absolutely delightful chatting with you this afternoon. Um, so women's rugby has really exploded since the 2016 Olympics and uh, on the back of the gold medal winning sevens women's rugby. Uh, the good thing is there most of those girls are still playing some level, either Jack mm-hmm. Scott Cup or Super Rugby in their appropriate states or sevens rugby. So how uh, how do you think we can take rugby to go forward from in from a women's rugby purpose to really help benefit the Wallaroos down the track?
1: Well, I think um, with women's rugby, uh, the the Rio gold medal was a wonderful catalyst. And it's incredible how um, those sporting heroes then generate, are a catalyst for the next generation of of youngsters, of young girls coming through. I mean, you see Ash Barty now and all the young girls who are wanting to play tennis now and become an Ash Barty. So in our uh, young days, uh, Matt, we had our heroes, and we looked up to these people because they were probably uh, conquering the world, um, or certainly performing at a very high level. And and I think the Rio Olympic team winning that gold medal has uh, really created an explosion of interest in in sevens rugby and also women's rugby. So it's important now um, to to maintain that momentum. And the Australian women's team are, are right up there in 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 the top three. Uh, in the world, and it comes down to uh, programs in the schools, and the schools are very important. And I think you'll find that being an Olympic sport now, uh, sevens rugby for women is extremely popular. I'm involved with Hunters Hill Rugby Club, who I'm, I'm sure you've commentated, yeah. and uh, they have a squad of 30 females, uh, and uh, they play sevens, and uh, that's a subbies club. So. All of the Shoot Shield clubs um, have women's teams and uh, the Wallaroos are now being you know, very well backed and, and supported by Bill Corp. Um, Tony and Josephine Suka have done a terrific job there in really fostering and uh, elevating women's rugby um, to the level it deserves. And uh, as a result, Australia is now very competitive and will be looking forward to competing in, in the World Cup. But the, the crux of your question is, it's got to be maintained. We've got to have those programs, the development officers and the teachers, and even the equipment um, so that young girls can be involved at school level. And, um, and the Olympic uh, funding that, that comes with being an Olympic sport, um, the main thing is that that's being injected in the right way. Yeah.
0: So the best ever wallaby players that you've seen mentioned them before, Mark Eller and David Kemp, he did it got all the flair and panache and everything that you look they be your favorite players like the or best well, ever think,
1: players you think um, yeah I could go from my first commentating start in the mid-70s of test matches um I would say my favorite players I can I can run through them I love Ken Wright uh when when he was playing for Australia um the zip zip band he went to rugby league um before that, um, my heroes, obviously, Ken Catchpole, um, the late John Thornett, uh, the Wallaby captain who led that beautiful tour through South Africa in, in 1963. Um, Rob Hemming, a second rower from Manly. Um, he was only about six feet two. Now, watch that I've in, in metrics? I've got to be careful there.
0: 188 centimetres, something like that. I'm 195. Something- I'm six foot five.
1: Okay. Well, he, you'll appreciate this, Matt. Rob Hemming was uh, jumping against Springboks, who were twice his size, and competing against Springboks, who were literally twice his size in South Africa in 1963. Um, he had a wonderful series. Australia drew the series, unlucky not to win the series. And they were fated and hailed as, as real heroes in South Africa um, and also by the Rugby War. Rob Hemming, at six foot two, maybe just barely six foot two, could clap his hands above the crossbar from a standing jump. Um, which massive. is pretty amazing. yeah that's that's pretty amazing and uh so he was uh he was a bit of a a hero of mine in those early days as well and then we came through um to the late 70s and the 80s uh, Mark Eller, Campo Simon Porterman Timmy Horan John Eels um to me was an absolute freak he became a, a a great leader um a very underrated player for me not only as a player but as a captain was Andy Slack um a terrific guy, very much a team man and Nick Farr-Jones boy oh boy, Nick Farr-Jones one of our greatest uh, Wallaby captains um, who else haven't I mentioned? Tim Gavin uh, I thought was a, a brilliant number eight and Willie Offerhen-Garway I love Willie um, incredible, <laughs> incredible talent you did not upset him, the Irish did in that uh, quarter final uh, in the 91 World Cup and they came off second best, I've never seen such a um, fistic Fury from from Willie O. In in this day and age, a couple of players would have been, would have been um, would have been sent off, and um, <laughs> yeah, I think. And coming through to the uh, the current crop of players, um, I did enjoy Kurtley Beale. Um, yeah. I was a big fan of Quade Cooper. Um, he was the guy who had to be treated correctly, and I don't think Australian rugby really looked after him as well as they could have. Uh, but he was certainly a pretty freaky talent. And um, I do hope that he is accepted, by the way, as an Australian citizen. He's apparently applied three or four times now and, and yeah, had his, 10 years. Yes. And, and to me, that's just ridiculous. Um, Quay Cooper, to me is a, a you know, a, was a great player for Australia, seventy Test matches. Um, he's highly respected throughout the rugby world, and um, he's he's a very decent human being. And how he is not regarded as an Australian citizen is beyond belief as far as I'm concerned.
0: Absolutely. So the second last question, I think it's a very important one that says a lot about you as a person. So you are an ambassador for legacy. So what what does legacy actually do and what does it mean to you to be, you're a legate as a child, from what I understand and be involved with legacy and had the great Weary Dunlop who was the former Wallaby and also, War. See, uh, someone who was a motivating factor or an inspiration due to being involved with legacy?
1: Well, I lost my father. We were a, um, a family of four uh, kids, two girls and two boys. I was the second eldest, uh, an older brother. And we lost my father uh, in, a, in a workplace accident at the theater, at the cinema. Uh, when I was 10 years old. And that was a big shock. But my father had served uh, in World War II in the Australian Army. And that meant that we were eligible um, for support and assistance from Legacy. And that's how it all started. So Legacy was, um, they appoint a legatee, a a senior person, um, to liaise with your family and make sure that the kids are all okay. And and, uh, it was tough times for our family growing up in the western suburbs. But Legacy would supply uh, money for a cricket bat or football boots or school uniforms if we needed it. Uh, there was always um, a helping hand there. And it was a debt that I have never could never pay back, to be honest. So I became an ambassador for Legacy and I'm still involved with, with Legacy um, all these years later. And um, I will be eternally grateful for the support they gave to my mother and uh, to my family. So Legacy support um, um, the dependents, the children and the, the wives or spouses of people who uh, have served in the Defence Force and have been uh, killed or who have died um, as a result. And um, Legacy has supporting uh, Defence Force families um, all over Australia, And they do an an incredible job. And it's just a thrill to be involved with Legacy. Um, You mentioned Weary Dunlop. He was more um, a player uh, who represented Australia from Victoria against the odds. He was a a POW in World War II and a, a surgeon, a very eminent surgeon. But I think the greatest thing about Weary Dunlop, apart from being a very charismatic person and an inspiration was the the work he put in post uh, the war and post uh, his career, putting back towards um, the human race and people in general. And uh, although he was badly treated by the Japanese in World War II, a very good example um, of his uh, humanitarian attitude was the fact that he billeted members of the Japanese touring rugby team in 1975 at his Turak home. Now, that says something about the the calibre of the person. So, yeah, he was um, an inspiration for all of those POWs in World War II, the Aussie POWs. Um, he was a great leader, and uh, he was a, an outstanding rugby player who did it from Victoria. So he's one of those people who all Australians should read about and be inspired.
0: Absolutely. I looked a, looked a little bit into... You always hear the story of Weary Dunlop when it comes up to Anzac Day, but when you actually start to look in behind it, it's just shocking to see some of the stuff that happened and the experiences, and he's not the only person, lots of people went through it, but what young men had to go through and witness their friends and compadres experience in in the war, and any situation, people die, and You step up and that could well be you that's taken the next or might be the next person that gets killed and unfortunately, Never done. He's, they cut off. whatever done.
1: He, he didn't hide behind anyone. Uh, he, if he was going to take the next bullet, so be it. Uh, yeah. That was that was the nature of the person. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he's he's revered um, in Victoria. They have the Weary Dunlop lunch um, each year. It, it's probably been stymied by the pandemic, but they get up to a thousand people at that Weary Dunlop lunch, and it's a it's a great occasion.
0: So the final question, Date, and it's been absolute delight this afternoon. I thank you very much for your time. What what does the future hold for Gordon Bray?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I will just say, Matt, that um, my career has been as a broadcaster has been a, a magic carpet ride, and uh, I'm still on the magic carpet. I'm not commentating uh, now, but I haven't given up hope of of returning to the microphone to to call international rugby. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly up for it I love the game and uh, I've been asked this question I said it's look it's a bit like going through a divorce with someone you still love And I gave that answer in 1991 when the ABC lost the rugby to channel 10. I gave exactly the same answer. Yeah. This is not new territory for me it's happened a couple of times but um, hopefully um, there is still a place for Gordon Bray behind a rugby microphone.
0: That would be a delight to hear that. And um, I'll put an open offer out there to you if you're interested. I'm commentating Absolutely. the last round of Division 2, uh, Hunters Hill against Newport, if we get back on the field this season. I'd love to I do can't a call. Guarantee be,
1: I can't guarantee it'll be a, an unbiased call if I've got to commentate Hunters Hill being the patron. But, Hunters Hill um, and Newport, yeah.
0: yeah. So, I'll, have to
1: go, I'll have to go back to my um, ABC training. <laughs> Neutrality. <laughs> I'd,
0: love to, I'd love to extend the offer there if, if you're interested. So we'll be down there. I don't know what date it is—fourteenth for August or something. If fingers crossed, we get back on the field. Yeah. Season,
1: so. Okay. Well, no. Well, I'll make a commitment, providing I'm not locked away somewhere. Yeah. Um, We we'll certainly can do that.
0: Absolutely. Thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Got it. It's been very enlightening, and your stories are fabulous. And. I just uh, really think that uh, it can take a lot of people will take a lot out of this going forward. It's going to be broadcast to a lot of different sports people and casual rugby fans, true rugby bloods, and then general uh, sports people as well. And I think that your contribution to sport and rugby in this country needs to be acknowledged, and yeah, you've done great work, and you're doing great work with legacy now as well. To get back to communities. Thank you,
1: thank you, Matt. Um, Matt, you're a, you're a true Blue supporter. Uh, the passion oozes out of your pores. I can see that. And uh, it's been a real pleasure to, to have a chat with you. I mean, you put so much into the game yourself. You love the game and uh, you love sport, clearly having played so many different sports. And uh, that's the joy of being an Aussie. And uh, oh, yeah. there's, there's plenty more good times to come.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Gordon. And I will chat with you soon.
1: Okay, Matt, all the best.